are listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from the Dory House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, the European Union has agreed to open membership talks with Ukraine. We'll unpack this decision and ask what happens next. Also ahead... The economy is the biggest concern here in Michigan. And voters say they trust Trump more than Biden on economic issues. New polls show Joe Biden trailing Trump in key swing states. We'll look at why and also examine the attempt to impeach the US president. We'll be in Tokyo to find out how Fumio Kishida is handling the biggest political corruption scandal in decades. Then, as Russia's population falls, we'll investigate Putin's drive for the year of family and the clampdown on abortions in the country. We'll browse the papers from Nairobi and have a Nordic News Roundup before joining Andrew Muller for his wry look back at the week. We learned that the season of peace on earth and goodwill to all and so forth was instead occasioning a goodly deal of seething. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Seven people, including four suspected Hamas members, have been arrested in Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands on suspicion of planning attacks on Jewish institutions in Europe. China is pressurising Taiwan with the trade barrier probe and warplanes in the Taiwan Strait a month before the island holds key elections. And Guyana and Venezuela have agreed to avoid any use of force and not to escalate tensions in their long-running dispute over the oil-rich Essequibo area. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, European leaders have agreed to open accession talks with Ukraine in a move that's been hailed as a major victory by Ukrainian leader Vladimir Zelensky. The landmark decision was announced last night following hours of negotiations at a high-stakes summit in Brussels. For more, I'm joined here in the studio by Nina Dos Santos, who's international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor. Nina, many thanks for coming in. Uh, Hungary has been a sticking point in these discussions since the beginning. So how was Viktor Orban's intransigence overcome? Well, this is a really interesting um, manoeuvre by Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, who up until now has been roundly criticised for you know sitting on the fence a little bit on the issue of Ukraine right up until the last moment. Um, and he apparently took Viktor Orban out of the room because remember that, or at least recommended that he go and get a coffee to recuse himself when EU leaders were trying to sort of formalise this final um you know, box-ticking exercise to allow Ukraine eventually to be on the road for accession. Remember that all 27 member states have to agree unanimously. And Olaf Scholz suddenly realised, well, actually, what if Hungary wasn't in the room at the time? That would mean that technically we've all agreed unanimously um, and Hungary can privately raise its objections but not actually put them down on paper. Um, So it was an interesting manoeuvre by the German Chancellor, also given Germany's reluctance to get involved in 
wars and foreign policy in the past. Again, it's seen as a turning point. This is a big win for Vladimir Zelensky. It's what he needed after coming back from the United States empty-handed when obviously he was trying to lobby for uh, getting Congress to sign off on that $60 billion worth of aid for Ukraine that's hanging in the balance. He was unsuccessful there. Um, The EU also uh, didn't sign off on its aid package yet for Ukraine. That was blocked by Hungary so far. But the biggie is the fact that now Ukraine alongside other countries like Moldova and Georgia, are going to be um, heading on this promised road to uh, EU accession. Might take a while, though, Georgina. Mm. I mean, as you, as you say, though, the, the financial agreement didn't go through. That's worth 50 billion euro. Uh, will that decision be revisited at some point? It looks as though it's going to continue to be discussed because essentially what's happening here is something similar to what's happening in the United States. The Ukraine aid package is being bolted onto other budgetary considerations. So one of the reasons reasons why uh, we didn't see uh, that $60 billion signed off in the United States so far, probably not until the start of next year, is because uh, factions, particularly among the Republican Party, are desperate to try and uh, get other concessions linked to it, like, for instance, border uh, control issues between the Mexico and United States border. A similar sort of thing is happening in the EU because there's countries like, for instance, Italy and other southern European nations that want extra money to deal with their migration uh, pressures that they're contending with as well. My observation of this, having um, covered Brussels in the past, is that obviously you've got these different factions inside the EU. The EU has to agree unanimously, but you've got um, more prudent, fiscally prudent nations like the Netherlands and Germany and so on and so forth. That when we have these EU budget negotiations, obviously stick out for more stringent financial conditions. And then you've got southern European countries like Italy and others um, that always say we need a lot more money for dealing with things like migration and so on and so forth. And yet again, that discussion's been had. It's been had every time the budget comes around um, in the EU. But this time it's crucial because there's so much money hanging in the balance that Ukraine needs to unlock that type of access to weaponry. It needs essentially to defend the eastern flank of Europe. Because uh, make no mistake, Georgina, Ukraine coming into the EU, it's a long roadmap. Um, And it also brings some challenges for the EU. It's a population of 44 million people, battle-scarred by now, relatively poor. Um, So it'll be a big change for the EU and it'll bring the border closer and closer, obviously, to Vladimir Mm. Putin's Russia. I mean, as you say, it's a long road. It's not, this is not even nearly a done deal. So what has to happen before Ukraine becomes a full member? I mean, there are many points along the way where they actually have to improve things, uh, for instance, corruption. Absolutely. And I think this is the crucial issue here. Uh, The scrutiny on Vladimir Zelensky's government and his cabinet, because remember, he's had many different changes of key people inside his cabinet. Um, You know, as things become more more strained allegations of corruption and so on and so forth uh, abound um, in Ukraine with previous governments, with elements of this current government. Um, And that's something that Russia over the years has weaponized. It's something that Viktor Orban, who obviously the Hungarian uh, leader who held out in these negotiations was difficult and is often accused of being close to Russia and doing Russia's bidding inside the EU. Um, He... uh, That was one of the things that he raised during these talks, you know, this issue question mark over whether or not Ukraine had actually fulfilled the criteria to get to this stage, rooting out corruption and so on and so forth. The other issue is a sort of democratic deficit, if you like, at the moment, because remember, this is a country that's been at war for more than two years now. Um, They can't have elections as a result because 
because we know that Russia has tried to interfere with elections in all sorts of countries, let alone Ukraine, um, and in the past. And Vladimir Zelensky was elected back in 2019. So the big question is, is what happens for him? What happens for his cabinet? Um, you know, and, and then there's... Um, regional corruption uh, question marks as well that presumably the EU will have to look at um, as well, which is also, always happens when you have these uh, accession talks. The other thing I was going to say is that even to agree to a framework for allowing Ukraine to join, you have to have another set of unanimous agreements. So there's no uh, reason why countries like Hungary couldn't hold out and be difficult further down the line. That's what's going to take so long. Um, and then there's nations like uh, Italy and others in Southern Europe that want to make sure that other Western Balkans Balkan countries um, that are also vulnerable to Russian interference and so on and so forth, like Bosnia Herzegovina, for instance, that they uh, that Ukraine doesn't jump the queue at their expense. Mm. So essentially, the EU has to try and signal to everybody and keep everybody happy that uh, enlargement is still something that's worth uh, fighting for, whether you're a Western Balkan nation or whether you're Ukraine, that obviously is on the the, the front line here, mm. if you like, against Russia. How's Hungary reacted to this? Well. Um, Obviously, Viktor Orban has said that he doesn't uh, approve of this, that he doesn't support it. Um, but obviously, uh, as I was saying before, he, he's been given an opportunity to sort of recuse himself, at least for now. Um, they obviously don't agree with, at the moment, the money uh, element of it. Um, but I suppose the question mark is whether or not Germany's Chancellor, because obviously uh, this is the most uh, economically powerful part of the EU, um, can continue to exert leverage like that and pull clever diplomatic manoeuvres. It's interesting, I was reading in Politico earlier this morning that uh, apparently um, EU sources can't point to another example of when they've seen a German Chancellor recommend that another EU member state just gently recuse itself from making this decision mm. for the moment. It almost makes a mockery of this sort of unanimous, uh, the you know, the, the necessity of there to be unanimous decision making inside the EU as the EU continues to enlarge and yet become more fractious on these great big issues of the mm. day. And I love the way that, yeah, that it's been done, that Hungary actually does have plausible deniability here yeah. in terms of involvement. But clearly it was signed off prior to that. Yeah, just it? go and have a coffee and calm down, essentially, <laughs> was the message, wasn't um, it? Nina, how's this decision going to affect the war with Russia, though? Uh, I think, for the, well, look, it's it's a big morale boost, obviously, for Ukraine at a time when Ukraine needed that. You know, winter's uh, setting in. I was speaking to somebody on the ground there just the other day and they were just saying, look, you know, Kiev has been rocked by a series of missile strikes just earlier this week. Um, just two days ago, um, a children's hospital was hit by falling debris. 53 people um, were hurt. So it really brings the spectre of war right back into that s surreal reality that we have in, in the capital, Kiev, where everything appears appears to be normal until all of a sudden it isn't and Russia manages to breach those air defence systems. Now, if Ukraine can't replenish those air defence systems um, because, say, for instance, the United States is distracted by having to uh, give military assistance to other parts of the world, like, um, you know, Israel and the war against Hamas and Gaza, um, that would be a big change. So the the concern on the ground, presumably, in Ukraine is that Ukraine has been given just enough to defend itself, but not enough to actually win the war or um, to defend Kyiv and various other um, you know, parts of Ukraine. And, and the other thing I was going to say is that the counteroffensive, obviously, 
much-anticipated counteroffensive appears to not just have stalled, but been something of a failure so far. So this was a big morale boost that uh, Ukraine needed, its leader needed, and its young generation needed, you know, to, to keep fighting. Nina, thank you very much indeed. That's Nina Dos Santos there. This is The Globalist. It is 7.12 here in London. That's 2.12 in Washington, D.C. It's not been a good week for U.S. President Joe Biden. The House of Representatives has voted to formally open an impeachment inquiry, alleging without any evidence that Biden and his family personally profited from his position whilst vice president under Barack Obama. And a couple of new polls show he's lagging behind former President Donald Trump in seven key states. I'm joined now by Natasha Lindstad, who's Professor of Government at the University of Essex. Uh, Natasha, good morning to you. Thanks very much for coming on the show. What exactly has Biden been accused of? That's a really good question because it's it's not that clear to, to anyone what he's being accused of. House Republicans are basically alleging that Biden and his family are engaging in some kind of influence peddling scheme and taking payments from foreign adversaries. And so the inquiry is largely focusing on what his son, Hunter Biden, has been doing in his forced, uh, foreign business dealings. Uh, now, one of the biggest uh, uh, things that the Republicans tend to focus on, and, and also the Republic, uh, the right-wing media in the U.S., is Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden's laptop. Anything having to do with Hunter Biden uh, is a treasure trove for Republicans. So it, it's not surprising that they've gone, gone down this path. Uh, but so far, they haven't really presented, as you mentioned, any clear evidence of Biden knowing or being involved in this or anything that looked like an impeachable offence. And I mean, it it refers to events several years ago. So why is it happening now? Well, that also is a good question. I mean, they seem to be blurring things quite a bit uh, in the way that they're talking about it. Maybe they think that there continues to be uh, some sort of... uh, reason why Biden is blocking the investigation into uh, Hunter Biden's uh, issues that he has today. Uh, There's a series of different investigations going on about Hunter Biden. And I think the Republicans feel that while Biden is president now, he's weaponizing the justice system to protect his son. Uh, That's as clear as I can, uh, you know, understand it. But but it, it is a little bit muddled. Uh, And of course, we can't discount the fact that there may be a wider political motive. The the Republicans might be wanting to get revenge for for Trump's impeachment inquiry and to destabilise the next elections. So that is what Trump himself has said, that the only reason why this impeachment uh, proceeding or inquiry is is going on is because uh, it is some type of revenge against what he had to deal with several times because he'd been impeached twice. And it, it's possible. I mean, the, the Democrats think that it's just um, stupid, uh, completely pointless investigation, and it's going to waste a lot of times um, because we don't really know where it happened, when it happened, what the motive was, who the perpetrators were, who the victims were. It, it, it's a bit of a, a mess. And I actually think it will backfire. I mean, at the moment, the far bigger problem for Biden is not this impeachment inquiry. I, I think it's much to do about nothing and it's it's not going to really lead to much. I mean, the far bigger problem is that he's doing so poorly in the polls right now. Well, let's look at those polls. Can you give us the latest figures? What do they show? Well, he's just not doing well in battleground states. And that's more important than what I guess the the 
overall national polls look like. I mean, he's not doing well in, in battleground states that he had won before, like Arizona, like Georgia, like Michigan, like Nevada, like Pennsylvania. Uh, and and he's down by by not huge numbers, but it, it's an, it, enough that the Democrats should be incredibly worried. And you also have a disapproval rating for for Biden that's uh, around 55 percent if you look at the average of all the polls. And I think the bigger problem is that 71 percent of voters think Biden is too old and he'll be 81. Uh, it, you know, he's 81 now and, and and he would be one of the oldest presidents ever if he were to be elected. Uh, while only 39% of voters think Trump is too old. So he has a real problem with the way people perceive him. Mm. Is it just his age or are there other reasons why people are turning away from him? And who are those people? I understand that, for instance, uh, in in Michigan, women are really turning away from him, as are auto workers, which is extraordinary, as he joined the picket line with them. Yeah, it is extraordinary. I, I think that his age is probably the biggest problem. But if you look at polls, voters are claiming that they think that the economy would be better off if Trump was in the White House. In fact, two thirds of the country polled think that the economy is not moving in the right direction and only 19 percent think it's in, in a good place. And at the moment, Biden is only really doing well with older uh, white voters, that seems to be his base. He's not doing well with younger people. He's losing, hemorrhaging support from Hispanics and African-Americans as well. And as you pointed out, also not doing as well as he should be with women, particularly all the issues that are going on affecting reproductive rights. Mm. Do you think he can turn it around? It's always possible. I mean, we've seen actually many cases where the incumbent was not doing well in the polls about a year or 11 months before, even including Ronald Reagan, who won in a landslide in 84, Obama, who won pretty handily in 2012. So I certainly think it's possible, but there'll have to be a huge shift in the way people perceive the economy is moving and also in the way they perceive Biden's abilities and capabilities to be. And we also the other X factors, all these investigations going on into Trump, criminal investigations, where he he could be uh, found guilty, he he could be sent to prison. Uh, what what is that going to mean for the uh, for the election? And, and it, it could change the mind of some of these independent or undecided voters. I wonder how Biden is polling compared to other Democratic candidates. I mean, if there was a strong challenger from within his own party, might that change the outlook for Democrats? And and who might such a challenger be? So it's not clear who a challenger would be from the Democratic Party at the moment. That's probably the the biggest problem for the Democrats. They don't really have any alternative to Biden at the moment because the issue is uh, Kamala Harris, who is his vice president, who I think some people thought when he selected her that he might only serve as president for four years and then he would step out and and. Um, she could run against uh, whoever the Republican candidate was. But her polling is almost worse than Biden's. Uh, so that makes it difficult. There, there's um, the governor of California uh, who is not – he doesn't have a lot of popularity in uh, with uh, you know the, the rest of the, the American public, though, though he's popular. Gavin Newsom I'm referring to. Uh, he's popular in California. Uh, so it – We'd be hard pressed to really find who could come in to save the day, um, because right now the Democrats are going to have to make a desperate plea that if they don't vote for Biden, that American democracy is in jeopardy. And, And that's really what the stakes are. Natasha, thank you very much. That's Natasha Linstead there. Now, still to come on the programme, it's Friday, which means we'll get Andrew Muller's unique take on what the past seven days have taught us.
We learned that the season of peace on earth and goodwill to all and so forth was instead occasioning a goodly deal of seething. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me down the line from Nairobi is the multimedia journalist Navina Couture. Good morning to you, Navina. Good morning. Uh, let's start with Kenya and the announcement that people visiting the country will no longer need a visa from January. Tell us more. Yes, it was quite an announcement that uh, the Kenyan president, William Ruto, made on Jamhuri Day. That was on Tuesday. It's the, um, it was the 60th anniversary of Kenya becoming independent. And um, he made this really grand announcement that people will not need a visa to visit the country, saying you're finally home. I think it made quite a lot of headlines, not just on the continent. But if you uh, read the small print, it is clear that you will still have to do an online application to enter the country um, that will allow officials to do a background check on you and that you will still be required to pay on arrival around 30 or 50 US dollars. So I guess it's still a visa, not just by name. Mm. Uh, And of course, he's done this because of trade and and, and, uh, tourism. Yes, he has done it for trade and tourism. He's a big believer in visa-free travel, definitely on the African continent. Um, He also needs um, basically dollars and needs people to come and spend dollars here um, because the country is short on dollars that they need to repay um, a loan that is due next year. So, And I think it's a great PR exercise for him. He's very good at placing these messages at very strategic times. And um, as I said, it made headlines around the world, not just on the continent. Mm. Uh, Let's go to Senegal now, where a popular opposition leader who's been in jail since July uh, and was struck off Senegal's electoral roll, um, he's to be reinstated. Yes, I think it's quite a significant movement that Osman Sonko will be reinstated on the electoral register. He has been fighting for that for long. There have been protests calling for um, the government, uh, basically accusing the government of having put pressure on officials to ban him from running. Um, Osman Sonko has been able to mobilize a lot of people, especially young people who are quite frustrated with the performance of the government when it comes to um, the cost of living and employment. Um, I think the country has seen a lot of investment, um, but that has also translated into higher cost of living, especially when it comes to housing. And I think we need to see who else will uh, run to who could basically challenge Osman Sonko's um, position in the country. Mm. Uh, But I mean, he's been accused of all sorts of things. He got off on the rape charge, but there are lots of cases pending against him. And that in turn has sparked violence in the country. Yes, he is really able to mobilize people to protest uh, for him and to kind of bring the country to a deadlock. We have seen um, the government imposing 
uh, a curfew in order to get these kind of protests under control. He does have a number of other charges against him. Um, he says they're fabricated and that the government's trying to prevent him from running. And as you say, one of the charges, the rape charges, were um, basically dismissed. But he didn't, he was not very um, constructive, I have to say. He was used to appear in court. Um, so there are questions about how serious he actually is when it comes to obeying the rule of law. Mm. Let's now look at this very controversial oil project. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pipeline uh, between Tanzania and Uganda. Tell us more. Yes, it's a pipeline that will um, that's supposed to connect an oil field uh, in Uganda in a national park in Queen Elizabeth Park um, in Uganda by Lake Albert uh, with the coast with the Tanzanian coast. It's very controversial. The French company Total, a Chinese company, and the Ugandan state are involved in this um, development on the Ugandan side. The Tanzanian state is involved in it on the Tanzanian side. Both countries are obviously hoping to earn money from it, and that will help um, with um, help economically. But um, there are obviously big question marks over whether you really need more fossil fuels to be exploited, especially in a national park in Uganda. People have been resettled in Uganda. Um, but the construction of the pipeline began um, this week and both countries are really set on going ahead with the, with the project. Mm. Staying with Uganda, the court is going to begin hearing the uh, LGBTQ law. Tell us more. Yes, there are four petitions that are being brought, uh, one by a journalist, uh, three others by human rights organizations saying that this law should be thrown out. Just um, to remind people, this law was introduced uh, fairly quickly earlier this year, and the president signed it into law um, in, in May. Since then, members of the LGBTQ community say they have been um, arrested, they have been sacked from their positions that they had, they've been evicted from their houses. Um, and this is being heard from Monday. The petitions are going to be heard from Monday uh, at the Supreme Court in Kampala. Mm. And they've just announced who the judges would be. Do we know if they have any particular bias one way or the other? I mean, it's, I think it's important to say that a similar law was thrown out in 2014 um, and the Constitutional Court was sympathetic to that position, uh, petition at the time. Um, people I spoke to in Kampala when I was there earlier this year were saying that now it's not entirely clear how, which way the court will go because some of the judges have been replaced with very conservative uh, judges. And it's not entirely clear that they will be, um, that they will not be sympathetic to the arguments brought forward by the government. Mm. Uh, And finally, uh, you're hearing that the president of the EU commission will be in Nairobi. Yes, um, it was supposed to be a quiet week ahead of Christmas, but it looks like Ursula von der Leyen will be in Nairobi on Monday to sign a free trade agreement with uh, Kenya um, in State House uh, with the president, with President Ruto. This was a Uh, announced earlier in the year. Again, it seemed a bit rushed, um, but the European European Commission has basically offered this free trade agreement. The Kenyans have agreed to it. And it means that uh, Kenyans will get access to the European market free of tariffs um, in order to sell products that are are already on the market, but to make them more competitive, uh, flowers, agricultural products, but also services. Um, And it's seen as a, a big economic partnership, but also as a diplomatic partnership at a time when Europe is looking for allies on the African continent.
content. Mm. Navina, thank you very much indeed. That's Navina Kotor there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Seven people, including four suspected Hamas members, have been arrested in Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands on suspicion of planning attacks on Jewish institutions in Europe. The initial account suggests any terror plot was not particularly advanced, although it comes after counter-terror officials across Europe warned that attacks could increase as a consequence of the war in Gaza. China is pressuring Taiwan with a trade barrier probe and warplanes in the Taiwan Strait, a month before the island holds key elections. Taiwan's government and the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, have repeatedly said China is trying to interfere in the vote, whether by military means or co-opting Taiwanese politicians to ensure an outcome favourable to Beijing. And Guyana and Venezuela have agreed to avoid any use of force and not escalate tensions in their long-running dispute over the oil-rich Essequibo area after a meeting between their heads of state. Tensions rose sharply this month after voters in a Venezuelan referendum backed a move to make the Essequibo area a new Venezuelan state and rejected the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Russians are dying in some number on the front line in the war with Ukraine, and almost a million people have fled the country since the start of the conflict. The declining demographic, from a peak of 149 million in 1992 to about 144.4 million today, is worrying the authorities, who are taking steps to boost the population by restricting abortion. This falls in under Vladimir Putin's executive order declaring 2024 the year of the family. But it's not going down well with Russian women who are protesting. Well, I'm joined now by Jenny Mathers, who's a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny specialises in Russian politics, gender and war. Uh, Jenny, many thanks for joining us once again. Um, Abortion has a long history in Russia. In 1920, Soviet Russia became the first country in the world to legalise the procedure. Can you tell us how this has developed over the years? Yes. So the the early support for abortion was really part of a very uh, sort of utopian and idealistic um, agenda and ideology of the Bolsheviks when they first came into power. And women's equality and women's liberalization was an important part of of the message and and the way that they wanted to transform Russia uh, into the Soviet Union. Um, What we found, though, during Stalin's time, um, particularly during and immediately after the Second World War, was a restriction of uh, rights to abortion and and more pro-natalist, pro-family kinds of policies, uh, quite similar to the ones that we're seeing Putin introducing now. Um, Things liberalized again in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, But what we've seen really under Putin, and especially since he returned to the presidency in 2012, is a much greater emphasis on family values uh, and, of course, on women having more and more children. Mm. Uh, so, So tell us about his Year of the Family initiative. So this is, again, part of this wider um, effort to present Russia as family friendly, um, very much in favor of traditional social values, um, not only to present it to the Russian population, but also to present Russia in this way to the world uh, and particularly to countries in the global south, where this message often resonates uh, very well with with leaders who have similar sorts of views. Mm. 
So, you know, the idea really is to promote the family. Putin has been saying a lot of things lately about the value of large families, uh, how having many children should be the norm for Russians. Um, and he's also been supporting through grants from the presidential administration, a number of private organizations or charities that promote these kinds of ideas as well and are very much anti-abortion. And tell us more about this anti-abortion movement. How is the state trying to control birth? They haven't outlawed it entirely. No, it hasn't. What we've seen really is, I think, a testing of the waters over the past several months. And this is coming in the form of recommendations by uh, the state, particularly by the Ministry of Health, uh, to regional governors and regional authorities, that firstly, they should um, crack down on the ability of private clinics to provide abortions. And this is a step that we've seen in a number of Russia's regions, not in the capital in Moscow, not in the big cities, but in the more remote regions as a sort of way of testing to see what popular response might be. Mm. So bans on clinics, private clinics providing abortions have already begun to, to take place. Um, also bans on what's called coercing women into having abortions, whatever that could mean, is also being tested uh, in some local authorities. And we know that some gynecologists are being instructed by the health ministry um, to give counseling sessions to pregnant women to emphasize the value and the benefits of becoming a mother and carrying their, their babies and having a uh, term and having 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 uh, born. So we see a variety of measures um, which are partial which are happening mainly in the regions. Um, but they, there's a lot of speculation that actually after Putin is re-elected in March 2024, we may see much, much harsher measures. And how have women been reacting? Well, I think not very well in terms of the the, the regime's desired response. Um, there's been you know quite a bit of resistance, um, you know, because m most Russian women are you know well educated. Uh, many Russian women are professionals, and you know a another really interesting point about all of this is that of course Russia relies very heavily upon women in the workforce, um, and so taking a significant number of women out of the workforce because they're continually having babies and looking after young children is really going to be disruptive for the economy. Mm -hmm. It does seem that some of these protests have been allowed to go ahead. And indeed, some pro-war Kremlin supporters have been leading the pushback. I mean, how unexpected is this? Would, would the authorities, why would the authorities allow demonstrations? Well, I think we, what we see in Russia is um, is a mixed picture in terms of what the authorities are willing to allow and not allow. Um, and I think they're sort of feeling their way when it comes to this particular issue. Um, what we have often seen is a sort of partial freedom. So freedoms in places. Uh, sometimes you can get away with doing something which the regime doesn't really like, and sometimes you can't. Um, and the the uncertainty around when the crackdown will come and who will be punished is part of what uh, causes people to police their own behaviour and to, to restrict themselves. Uh, and in, in terms of, of, of this push for family and, and the push really to, to drive up the population figures, is this linked to the war in Ukraine? I think it is in part. I think what we're seeing now is really an intensification of the messages and the efforts that Putin's regime has been um, making really for a number of years now. I mean, ever since 20, uh, sorry, ever since 2008, uh, Russia has awarded what's called the Order of Paternal Glory, or Parental Glory rather, um, to, to parents who have more than seven children. Um, so this you know, effort to pr promote large families has been happening for, for quite some time, but it has gained, I think, additional uh, impetus and importance uh, in the context of the war. 
I mean, it's it's ironic because, of course, at the same time that Russia is encouraging more women to have babies, it's busy sending the the potential fathers of those babies to to fight and die in, in the war in Ukraine. Um, so I think as a as a successful policy, it's probably not going to achieve the results that uh, that Putin necessarily wants. But in terms of messaging and PR and sending the signal that you know Russia has these traditional family values and that women need to get in line behind it, um, that I think is a really important part of of what's happening. Jenny. Thank you very much indeed. That was Jenny Mathers from Aberystwyth University. You're with Monocle Radio. Last week, Azerbaijan was nominated to host the UN's annual climate conference next year. That's COP29. The decision drew fierce criticism, not only because Azerbaijan is a large producer of fossil fuels, but also because of the country's poor human rights record. This autumn, Azerbaijan launched a military operation into the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh in the South Caucasus and retook control of the territory. Since then, hundreds of thousands of ethnic Armenians have fled to nearby Armenia. Levi Bridges, a journalist based in Kyrgyzstan, filed this report on the ongoing humanitarian crisis. Azerbaijan managed to take over Nagorno-Karabakh last September in just a couple days of fighting. In a video shot during the campaign, air raid sirens blare and gunshots ring out in the distance. The region, which until recently was populated by ethnic Armenians, was incorporated into Azerbaijan during the Soviet Union. Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh formed their own independent government after the Soviet Union fell, but the region is still internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan. In recent years, Azerbaijan retook large swaths of the region through military force. In this fall, Azerbaijan's forces succeeded in reaching Stepanakert, the local capital, and regained control of the entire region for the first time in 30 years. Nearly the entire population of ethnic Armenians who previously lived in Nagorno-Karabakh have fled into nearby Armenia. (laughs) I spoke over Zoom with one Armenian woman named Ruzana Tavadyan, who settled outside Armenia's capital, Yerevan. Tavadyan says when Azerbaijan launched the military assault, she took refuge in a basement for days. She and her two children eventually fled their home with just the clothes on their backs. They got a ride out of the region in the back of a large truck. Tavadyan's daughter shot a video of the trip on her cell phone. You can see long lines of traffic backed up as thousands of people tried to escape to Armenia. Tavadyan says seeing all these people leaving was awful to witness. She says our people are suffering because we no longer have a homeland or a roof over our heads. We don't have anything. Azerbaijan has said that Armenians are welcome to stay in Nagorno-Karabakh, but Alyssa Vartanyan, a senior research analyst for the South Caucasus with the International Crisis Group, says ethnic Armenians in the region are afraid to live under Azerbaijan's government. People started panicking because people thought that now Azerbaijani forces were to enter their towns, villages, and massacres would start happening. 
Vartanyan says that Azerbaijan's military committed crimes against Armenian civilians in Nagorno-Karabakh during a 44-day conflict both sides fought back in 2020. So thousands fled to nearby Armenia because they believed Azerbaijani soldiers might harm them again. The timing of these events couldn't have been worse. Armenia has been really struggling to handle the refugee crisis because almost immediately after people arrived from the Karabakh, the war started in Israel and Gaza and finances that otherwise could be available, they were diverted to a different place. The lack of resources has caused deep frustration among displaced Armenians. Matakse Hakabyan is a politician from Nagorno-Karabakh who was also displaced. Hakabyan says that both the Armenian government and the international community have been indifferent to the needs of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh. International aid groups are rallying to provide assistance, but many displaced people say they've received more support from private groups. Armenians are also frustrated because last year, the EU signed a memorandum to buy gas from Azerbaijan to wean itself off Russian energy. Many EU lawmakers oppose doing business with Azerbaijan, saying the country's human rights record is so poor that it's not better than doing business with Russia. But Gligor Radicic, with the environmental NGO Bankwatch Network, says large state-owned utilities and private companies usually make the final decision on whether to buy gas from Azerbaijan. And for companies, it's like lucrative enough, they will stay within those deals. I mean, I don't believe that they are that much concerned with with the human rights issues, unfortunately. The EU's gas deal with Azerbaijan also hasn't fully achieved its goal of cutting revenue to Russia from energy sales. Russian energy company Lukoil owns large stakes in Azerbaijan's energy infrastructure, including the gas pipeline that transports oil to the EU. Radicic notes that Lukoil is a major taxpayer in Russia. And those revenues also can go to the state budget of the Russia, and that can implicitly go to the Russian war efforts in Ukraine. But so far, gas is still flowing out of Azerbaijan, and its citizens are moving to parts of Nagorno-Karabakh that Armenians fled. In a video posted on YouTube, soldiers and officials from Azerbaijan's government are seen holding a victory parade in the region's capital. It's a moment of celebration in an authoritarian country that has severely limited the rights of citizens and cracked down on any form of opposition. Ahmad Mamadli, an activist from Azerbaijan, says the country's political environment is part of the reason why Azerbaijan's government has no interest in allowing Armenians to stay in Nagorno-Karabakh. Speaking through an interpreter, Mamadli says, well, if they let Armenians stay in the region, then Azerbaijan would have to give them special freedoms as an ethnic minority. And that's impossible for our government, because then Azerbaijanis would have asked for more freedoms too, he says. But still, many displaced Armenians who I spoke with say they firmly believe that they will return to their home someday. 
Rusana Tevadyan, the mother who recently became a refugee in Armenia, says she wants to go home so badly that she would agree to any conditions Azerbaijan might require if it meant she could return. But Nare Semenyan, an Armenian from Nagorno-Karabakh who lives in Yerevan now, says it would be hard going back. The building we were living is destroyed fully, and I would prefer not to see my town in that situation. But the destruction hasn't erased the importance of Nagorno-Karabakh for Armenians. Semenyan sent me an old video of her family singing in the woods by their former home. For many Armenians, all that remains of their homes now are memories of the moments they shared there together, and the dream that they can someday return. For Monocle Radio, I'm Levi Bridges. Thanks to journalist Levi Bridges for that report. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. We've been following the political scandal in Japan for some time as Prime Minister Kishida tries to revamp his government amid falling popularity rates, now at just 30%. Events have moved on and our Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Asia editor and Tokyo bureau chief, joins me now to bring us up to speed. Fiona, this is the biggest financial scandal the ruling party has faced in decades. Can you remind us of the allegations? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Georgina. And it's a disaster for Kishida. Um, His ratings have fallen even further now, just uh, by the way. Yeah, so, I mean, the the big scandal here is that the LDP, the ruling party in Japan, absolutely dominant in Japanese politics. It turns out they've been underreporting the money they've been receiving for fundraising events. doesn't sound very serious, but across the party, um, it's added up to quite a lot of money. And they're really honing in on one particular faction known as the Abe faction, which was named after the late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And they think about 500 million yen uh, has been underreported, which is about 300 million euros. And you've now got the Tokyo public prosecutors saying they are going in to really go over this, this specific faction. But honestly, it looks like this scandal is just going to grow because it's probably going to uh, cut across the party. So how is Kishida uh, attempting to manage it? Well, what he's done today, he's had a reshuffle and it was the first meeting of the reshuffle cabinet. I'm not sure the reshuffle is very convincing. You know, he had to replace the chief cabinet secretary, which is a very, very important role in Japan. And it seems that nobody wanted to take the job. Um, It was quite difficult to persuade anyone. What he wanted was someone who was not um, aligned with any faction. There aren't that many of them in the LDP. It's just the way the party is set up. Each member is really allied to one of these uh, factions. And in the end, you know, he didn't have any choice. He had to go back with Yoshimasa Hayashi, who has been a foreign minister. He was uh, reshuffled in September, put on some uh, subcommittee, tax subcommittee, not sure what he'd done. But uh, he's now reappeared as the chief cabinet secretary. And he is actually in the the faction that Kishida was leading until quite recently, until he realised that that really wasn't tenable. So he's he's stepped back from leading the uh, the Kishida, as it's called, Kishida faction himself. But uh, yeah, so the new spokesperson is is a very familiar face. Mm. I wonder how Kishida's remaining colleagues are dealing with this and if he still retains their support. 
Well, I mean, he's had to replace four cabinet members and a whole load of other very senior officials. It's really, you know, it, it's a terrible look. The public is not enjoying this at all. His ratings are tanking. It's gone below 20 percent for the first time since 2012, since uh, the LDP came back into power. And, in, and so it looks terrible for him. He looks very weakened. And the Abe faction, I think they seem to be pretty furious. They feel they're being picked on. They say, you know, we didn't know there was anything wrong. I mean, whether that's true or not, they're saying a lot of people are actually saying that Kishida may pay for this when it comes to the election, the presidential election for the party next autumn. He won't be able to count on the Abbey, Abbe faction support, which is critical because the Abbe faction is the biggest faction in the party and it did support him at the last election. So it, it could um, be very, very difficult. And I think, you know, looking at the papers today, I was looking at the Yomiuri Shimbun, biggest bit newspaper in Japan, right leaning paper. They, they've got a very, very tough editorial today saying that Kishida really needs to do more to convince people and he hasn't done enough to win the trust of the public mm. and that, you know, it, it's really not looking good for him. I mean, and this scandal is not his only problem. He's been criticised for his handling of the economy. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, that's been an ongoing issue. I mean, obviously, the Japanese economy, like every other major economy, has been hit hard by Ukraine, COVID. He did try and do a massive stimulus package. It wasn't very well received. The figures are not great for the economy at the moment. It, it, the, the general feeling is that the Japanese economy is just chugging along and it's slightly stalled at the moment. And it's a very unfortunate t- timing for, for Kishida because, you know, it's coming at the same time as, as this scandal. Um, he's also had the problem with, the, you know, the Moonies. That church has been a huge problem for him. It, that, that's, he's had to deal with that. The public didn't like that. They felt that the LDP was using that as, a, as another fundraising, um, sort of voluntary fundraising sector. That's another scandal. So he's really been dogged by these scandals. He's tried reshuffles. He's tried this this huge stimulus. And, you know, according to, um, you know, our new chief cabinet secretary, the, the subject of this scandal um, with, with the LDP party fundraising didn't even come up in cabinet today. Now, I, I find that rather hard to believe. But and I think if you really want to restore public trust, I think transparency is the way forward. Mm. And of course, Kishida doesn't need to call an election until October 2025. Do you think the scandal will influence the timing? Oh, definitely. I mean, a lot of people felt earlier in the year that the end of the year would be a good time for him to do a snap election. You know, these snap elections seem to happen quite a lot in Japan. I think people felt that would be great timing for him. As it turns out, it's terrible timing. His, His ratings are disastrous. I think there's a feeling that you know, it could be April. But, you know, who knows if this scandal widens? I think there's starting to be a feeling that he may not be the person to handle this this scandal. Um, so who knows? It's an exciting one for the new year. Mm. Uh, the fractured opposition in Japan has historically struggled to make sustained inroads into the, the dominance of the LDP. Could this be their chance? Could the next election change the political landscape? You would think, wouldn't you? But uh, <laughs> I heard Kenta Izumi, who runs the, the CDP, the biggest opposition party today, not very impressive performance, to be honest. He said, oh, we've, you know, these are the same old faces. We need more. And he's right. But it just really lacked punch. And when you look at these these latest polling figures, which have, you know, the LDP cabinet down at 17.1 percent, one of the, re- the reports I saw said one of the polls. 
I think the, the polling for the CDP was at 4.4%, I think. I mean, it's not like the, the opposition is is really uh, roaring ahead in the polls. So I think that's helping Kishida. And also the fact that there really isn't a rival within his own party who is who is stepping forward. I think many people feel the current situation is so toxic, people are not stepping forward to uh, to take their chance. Fiona, thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson, and this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to get a roundup of the latest Nordic news with Petri Botsov, who is Monocle's Helsinki correspondent. Uh, Petri, Finland uh, has released more details of a defence uh, pact with the US. And I'm intrigued by this because, of course, as we know, Finland has just joined NATO. So how does this differ? What are the terms of this pact? Good morning, uh, Georgina. It's a very uh, wintry morning in Helsinki, and it's going to be interesting for the U.S. soldiers who make their way into Finland to sort of just cope with this sort of minus 10, minus 15 Celsius uh, temperatures. So basically, the the Defense Pact uh, grants U.S. soldiers uh, unlimited access, both in terms of sort of uh, sort of troops, uh, but also uh, military equipment and ammunition to 15 key military uh, Finnish military installations. And it comes at an interesting time because, as you said, you know Finland already joined NATO earlier this year. So you know why this bilateral act? And the way the government, Finnish government, framed this yesterday was quite clear. The Defense Minister Antti Häkkänen said that this is meant to serve as a as a further deterrent against. Uh, Russia basically sort of providing a more concrete deterrent than NATO uh, uh, membership, which is essentially, you know, security guarantees on on paper, but doesn't have doesn't name anything concrete. Whereas this is very concrete, sort of how US will be able to access Finland uh, militarily to to help Finland. And by the way, Finland, uh, by the way, Sweden made a um, similar pact with uh, Sweden last month and is also in in talks of uh, striking a similar pact with uh, Denmark. And of course, Finland uh, had shut its borders with Russia completely. They did reopen them briefly, though. (laughs) <laughs> yes, so this is uh, quite a, quite a farce, actually. So yesterday, Finland opened the um, two of the key border crossings, uh, sort of in the south of Finland uh, on the Russian border, after they had been closed uh, um, along with all the border crossing stations on the Russian border for two weeks. Um, and this, of course, followed the uh, what Finland claims was or- the uh, orchestrated arrival of over a thousand asylum seekers in just a few weeks from uh, Russia to Finland. But then. Uh, you know, as soon as the border opened, we saw heavy traffic going both ways um, from Finland to Russia and from Russia to Finland, because especially those living on the border, you know, they have relatives and loved ones across the border and they're used to sort of shopping and doing business there. But we also saw pretty much immediately after the border opened more asylum seekers uh, come in. I think uh, yesterday the figure was um, over 100. And again, this morning I read reports that almost 100 have arrived. So the government announced um, yesterday afternoon that it will reclose uh, the border starting at 8 p.m. tonight and this time for for a month. And I mean, this is a really busy time of year for, for travel coming up to the festive period. A lot of uh, ordinary people, as you say, who live there must be being affected. But what about the asylum seekers? Where do they go? 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, they are the, the unfortunate victims here, as, as is so often the case. I mean, they have nowhere to go. And these people are mostly from uh, countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Sudan, uh, you know, countries where, where the temperatures are slightly higher than in, in Finland. So, you know, they will uh, basically the reports that Finland has is that Russia keeps them in this um, sort of uh, hostels and, and centers near the Finnish uh, border. And then as soon as the border opens, they, they basically take them on the bus bus to the border and then they have to wait there in this wintry very cold um, conditions before they can cross let's turn to sweden now and look at this strike against tesla Yes, so we have witnessed over the past couple of weeks this uh, sort of fight between uh, or a conflict between the American car maker Tesla and the Swedish labor unions over uh, workers' rights at Tesla's Swedish facilities, which is, um, you know, essentially the Swedish unions want Tesla to uh, strike a collective um, agreement uh, with with the unions, which is, by the way, in, in Finland and Sweden, kind of the norm. You don't make individual agreements, you make collective agreements, whereas in the U.S. it's, it's, it's very rare to have these collective uh, wage agreements. Um, so this is essentially, the way I see it, it's a, it's a clash between uh, sort of the American uh, culture of capitalism and then, then the Nordic, Nordic model. But what is interesting here is that you know, Elon Musk himself um, has weighed in on 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 the issue. I don't think Sweden is very high high up on the map on on sort of Tesla's key facilities. And then we've also seen uh, um, so-called sympathy uh, strikes in support of the Swedish Union. So yesterday we saw um, the um, Swedish uh, transport transport workers union say that it would stop collecting waste at Tesla's workshops in in Sweden. So so uh, things are things things are things are just getting worse for Tesla. Mm. Now some economic news from Norway, uh, where interest rates have been hiked. Yeah, so so yesterday the Norwegian Central Bank announced that it would um, once again hike interest rates. Um, I believe they're at 4.5 right now. And Norway is suffering from unusually high in inflation. It's been at 6% for for quite some time now. And I mean, looking at this from a sort of a Finnish perspective or a Swedish perspective, I mean, we are – when people from other Nordic countries travel to Norway, we always see Norway as this sort of a very expensive country where, you know, you can hardly afford a, a, a coffee. But now it's, it seems almost strange to travel to, to, to Oslo, for example, when, you know, the prices are just the same as, as, as they are in other Nordic countries. So, so um, yeah, some quite, quite interesting um, uh, sort of financial news coming from Norway. Yeah, absolutely. And then I just love this last story. I just can't quite get my head around it. This is about a man who flew from Denmark to the US without a passport or a ticket and he doesn't remember how he got past security. Yeah, this is a remarkable story. I, I, I saw this in The Guardian. So so basically this is a, a Russian and Israeli dual citizen who uh, the events took place in, in November, but uh, we've learned further details about this uh, uh, yesterday. So basically, he managed to sneak onto a flight uh, from Copenhagen to Los Angeles without, as you said, without flight ticket, without a passport or without a visa to <laughs> to get into the U.S. And of course, uh, you know, he was arrested once he arrived in the U.S. and he claims that he uh, he does not remember at all how he got past security or, or uh, onto the plane in Denmark. And it's, you know, quite interesting details have also uh, emerged. He, he for example, um, 
uh, when he was on the plane, he kept uh, the fellow passengers have have said that he kept wandering around the plane, switching seats and trying to talk to other passengers who ignored him. And then he also asked for extra meals during the flight. And he also stole some of the chocolate from the cabin crew. <laughs> I mean, it does sound like, like he might have had uh, perhaps mental health issues. It, it might it might be so. But I mean, just think about it, Georgina, when you and I, when we try to get on a plane, you know, the, the hoops that we have to jump through, uh, all the security and all of that. And then just there's there's this guy who doesn't have any documents and just manages to, to get onto a plane. And there's, by the way, I, I think there's something, there's an element of... of um, pre-planning here because there was one empty seat on that flight and he sat on that uh, seat so you know he must have must have somehow known about it extraordinary uh Petri, before you go of course we know that christmas is coming and uh you live in the home of santa claus that's correct that's correct <laughs> <laughs> is he around have you have, have there been any sightings uh not yet not yet but uh you know we still have to wait uh what is it now nine days before before he comes in finland we always celebrate christmas on the 24th on the, on the Christmas Eve, and all the kids are eagerly waiting uh, his uh, his his arrival. Um, but yeah, no 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 sightings yet. But I heard there was a sighting of him at the Monaco Christmas Market. Absolutely, he was here with his big <laughs> ho 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 and all the rest of it. And really, genuinely from fin- from Finland, we import our Santa from Finland, which I think is a, a great thing to do. Um, what what do you how do you celebrate on Christmas Eve? So on Christmas Eve, I mean, as as in in any country, it's all about food. We families gather together. Most of most of Finns actually sort of travel to the countryside to to stay with the relatives because you know it's the winter is more magical, magical somehow somehow there. But yeah, first we eat. Uh, uh, you know, uh, copious amounts of food, and then we're sort of in this food coma, and then Santa knocks on the on the door and comes and delivers the presents. And children, of course, you know, they they sit on Santa's lap, they they dance and they sing carols with with uh, Santa, and Santa delivers the uh, the presents. And then he's uh, then he goes, and then he's on his uh, merry way. And of course, he has to cover all the homes, Absolutely. not only in Finland but also all <laughs> over the world. Fetchy, thank you very much for joining us. This is the Globalist, and finally, it's Friday, which means. It's time to get Andrew Muller's take on what we've learned this week. So here it is, Merry Christmas, everybody's having fun. We learned this week that quite contrary to the confident assertion of luxuriantly sideburned Wolverhamptonian hitmakers Slade, everybody is not having fun. We learned, indeed, that Christmas appears to be making quite a lot of people extremely angry. And not just that guy. We learned that the season of peace on Earth and goodwill to all and so forth was instead occasioning a goodly deal of seething. We learned that the targets of this rage, the CDs, if you will, were large British retailers, though not for the reasons which might have been expected, desired and indeed deserved, for e.g. putting Christmas decorations up in like July and berating us absolutely mercilessly with maudlin television commercials soundtracked by insufferably winsome warblers with ukuleles trilling twee versions of rock standards. She's got a smile that it seems to me Reminds me of childhood memories When everything was as bright as the bluest sky 
would be an awful, awful shame if they were crushed to death by a grand piano falling out of an overflying cargo aircraft. That's showbiz. We learned instead that people who were angry about the Middle East, which is, to be clear, not necessarily an unreasonable thing to be angry about in and of itself, were taking this out on certain of the UK's high street institutions. We had indeed already learned to be braced for this eventuality, and we'll need that swirling mists of time sound effect we use for filling in the backstory. Back in October, October we ask you, Marks and Spencer had floated a semi-ironic have-cake-eat-cake Christmas campaign, riffing on the very fact that some people are annoyed to the edge of their endurance by Christmas, a fury perhaps not assuaged by organisations like Marks and Spencer flogging Christmas in goddamn octo-actual burr. Their ad depicted festive paper hats flung into a fireplace, which prompted opprobrium from two quarters. One, weirdos who thought it somehow blasphemous. Two, weirdos who thought that the green and red colours of the blazing hats were some sort of slight upon Palestine. To both sets of weirdos, Marks and Spencer apologised. Anyway, we learned that, and inevitably, following Marks and Spencer's abject capitulation, there was going to be more where that came from. Oh no. We learned that angry online mobs had descended upon Zara over a Christmas ad campaign which featured models standing in rubble. Like Christmas ad campaigns aren't shot months and months in advance, and like such is the human condition, there isn't always rubble somewhere. But... Sticking with the subject of Yuletide clothing retail initiatives in arguably questionable taste, we learned of new merch from this guy. For the first time, we're creating a real physical trump card. Purchase 47 digital cards and we'll mail you a beautiful trading card. It is an authentic piece of the suit I wore when I took that now famous mugshot. And it was a great suit. Believe me, a really good suit. We learned when we looked into it further that the grift appears to be that if you, you in this instance ideally being a credulous simpleton, which obviously rules out all our listeners, but stick with us, buy 47 digital Donald Trump cards at $99 each, you will be posted a fragment of the suit worn by the former president at one of his recent arraignments. Which is to say that once you've coughed up the thick end of five large for 47 items which do not in any meaningful sense exist, you have the word of Donald Trump that you will receive a snippet of what he was wearing for one of his higher profile disgracings of his nation's highest office. Yikes. But we learned that despite giving every appearance of being a preposterous scam designed to separate lack-witted cultists from the contents of their wallets, this is... Not that. We learned that according to no less an authority than CollectTrumpCards.com, and really, would CollectTrumpCards.com lie to us? Lying to us just does not seem like a thing that CollectTrumpCards.com would do, that the outfit in which Trump glowed into the camera at the Fulton County clink is, and we quote, the most historically significant artifact in United States history. 
We are yet to learn, as of this broadcast, what George Washington's sword, Abraham Lincoln's hat, Davy Crockett's rifle, Amelia Earhart's goggles, Chuck Berry's guitar, or Neil Armstrong's helmet make of this assessment, but we'll bring you updates as we get them. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Miller. Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. Uh, now, that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Emma Searle and Laura Kramer, our researcher, Naomi Akwe, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu, with editing assistance from Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and the briefing is live at midday in London, and The Globalist will return at the same time on Monday. In between, of course, we've got fabulous listening all the way across the weekend. Uh, I'll be here on Saturday. Emma Nelson will be with you on Saturday. Sunday and I can tell you that there's a brand new edition of Meet the Writers coming out on Sunday. It's all about listening and music. Uh, so uh, Michelle Faber has written a wonderful book on called Listen on Music, Sound and Us and Casper Henderson has written a book of noises uh, and I'll be talking to both of them about just how to listen properly. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.